so today we'll be reading from Esther 1, 1-22. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne at the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Medea, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant, in keeping with the king's liberality. But the king, by the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehuman, Bizpha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abgatha, Zephyr, and Carxus, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and the nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Since it was custom for the king to consult experts in matters of the law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and who were closest to the king. Keshrina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Merses, Mersina, and Mechmun, the seven nobles of Persia and Medea, who had special access to the king and were of the highest in the kingdom. According to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of the king Xerxes that the eunuchs had taken to her. Then Mechacum replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all nobles and people of all provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought to him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of nobility who have heard of the queen's conduct will respond to all of the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree, and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Medea, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter into the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then, when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands, from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. So the king did as Mehekim proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in their own script, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should rule over his own household using his native tongue. Thank you very much, Jen. Uh, good morning. Let me begin 
by telling you about a student I used to work with. Uh, he was part of the student fellowship that used to serve back in the UK. And what this group would do, they would put on these events designed to giving people an opportunity to hear about Jesus. This sort of week-long series of events. And so to advertise that, they would do all the normal things. They would have posters and flyers, videos online. Uh, one of the things in particular was that they would make announcements at the front of their lecture theaters. And that's what this student did. Uh, it's what societies commonly did on campus. And so he asked for permission. He did his thing. But then after he sat down, the professor then came up and told everyone in that room that that was not the place to be advertising things about Christianity. And the whole room burst into applause. Imagine that. Uh, this is one of those undergraduate lecture halls, uh, three, four hundred students. Imagine how you would have felt if you were my student or one of the other Christian students there looking on, watching your friend up there. Imagine how small you would feel. And yet, of course, for many of us, we don't quite have to imagine because each of us will have our own stories to share of times when we have felt so small as Christian believers. Uh, different scenarios, different situations, maybe less dramatic perhaps, and yet stories nonetheless of when we have felt so small as Christian believers. I know that here at Ambassador, quite a number of us come from unbelieving families where we're the only Christian believer in our family. And it can be really hard holding on to Jesus Christ when those that you are so close to, so dear to you, are so antagonistic to the faith. And perhaps we feel small at school, at university, the only one amongst our peers who uh, follows Jesus Christ. Perhaps we feel small at the workplace. Uh, or perhaps we just think of our place as Christians in this society. It feels like other people run the show. There's other people in charge. Put it this way, it can feel like earthly powers seem supreme. And in this, it can seem like God is absent. You see, in each of these scenarios, we ask the question, well, where is God? Where is God in that situation? Where is God in our world? Where is God in our lives? Well, friends, if you've ever asked that question, let me assure you of this. Uh, the first thing is that you're not alone. But the other thing is this. Esther, the book of Esther, has good news for us. Because the book of Esther shows us, declares to us, God is at work. Even when it doesn't look like it. God is at work. Even when earthly power seems supreme. Even when God seems to be absent, we can know that God is at work in the world. You see, this book of Esther is a peculiar book. Many of you might already know this, but God is not mentioned anywhere in the book of Esther. You read through the whole book, and there is not a single mention of God. If you are new to reading the Bible, you might think that's strange. Why would you have a book like this in the Bible? If you're familiar with reading the Bible, you might still think that's strange. What has this got to do with anything? In fact, even in this uh, opening chapter that we've read this morning, and there's no mention even of God's people, no mention of their land. Uh, you wonder, what has this got to do with the story of the Bible? Well, what we will see as we go through this series is that this book of Esther has everything to do with the story of the Bible. Previous times when I've talked through the book of Esther, we've gone through it at a much quicker pace. 
Uh, we've gone through it larger chunks of a shorter period. And one of the advantages of that is that you get to see the story unfold a bit quicker. But the big disadvantage is that you end up having to skip over certain bits. And so what we're going to do this time is we're going to take a little bit longer. We're going to spend the next seven weeks in the book of Esther uh, so we can read every word together on a Sunday. And my hope is that we will have the opportunity to see even more how this story connects with the story of the Bible. How the story of Esther shines a light on the gospel of Jesus Christ. How this story of Esther shows us something of how we can live in a world where earthly power seems supreme. How we can live when we feel so small in our society. How we can live when we feel like, or we know that this world is not our home. See, the book of Esther, it isn't this strict manual of what to do and what not to do. It doesn't come to us as a textbook filled with examples kind of to follow specifically. No, it does something much more than that. It shows us, it opens our eyes to see that God really is at work in the world, even when it doesn't look like it. Even in our chapter this morning that we're looking at, we are presented with a world that looks very impressive. You'll have picked that up already as we read through. It's an impressive world, but it's not as impressive as it looks. There's more than meets the eye. It's not all that impressive. And crucially, it is a world where God is at work. He really is at work despite appearances. And so with that in mind, why don't we jump in then and look at this world that is held out for us in Esther, this world that looks so impressive. Verse 1, this is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. Uh, right from the off, we're introduced to one of the main characters of the story, King Xerxes. And this is the King Xerxes of the Persian Empire. If you look him up, you'll find his dates. He reigned from 486 to 465 BC. That's who this guy was. And if you look him up, you'll find all sorts of interesting facts about him. There's all sorts of background information you can find. But here at the start of Esther, we're shown what the focus is. Here is a powerful king who reigns over a powerful kingdom. You see the way the rule and reign are repeated throughout verse 2. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the city of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. Uh, this is the setting of our story. Here is King Xerxes and he is sitting on his throne. He rules from this citadel, this palace complex. And basically all the events of the story of Esther take place in relation to this city of Susa, one of the four capital cities in the Persian Empire. In other words, this is the seat of power. This is where things happened. And their power was expansive. You'll have noticed that detail already in verse 1. He reigns over 127 provinces. Uh, this is how one writer describes it. If you were to match that onto a modern map, this is what you'd find. If you superimpose the Persian Empire on a modern map, it would more or less cover northwestern India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Iran, Iraq, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Jordan, Turkey, northern Greece, Egypt, Libya, Eritrea, Ethiopia, and northern Sudan. Just try to picture that map. 
This was pretty much all of the then known world except from the rest of Greece. This is the empire that we're starting in. See, where were God's people in this? Where did they fit in? Well, by this stage in their history, they had been kicked out of their land. Uh, you read through Israel's history and you see how they turned away from God. They, they tried to push him out of the picture. And so just as God warned, they were taken out into exile. Now the empire that did that was the Babylonian Empire. And where we join the action is a number of years later, a different power has come to the scene. The Persian Empire. And they ruled the day. It was expansive. It's a world that looks incredibly impressive. Uh, maybe you can think of it this way. One of the world's least popular board games is, of course, Monopoly, which is painful because I love Monopoly and no one ever wants to play it. It's very sad. See, apparently the reason why it's not so popular is because very quickly you can work out who's going to win. You know, right from the start, someone starts to win and there's almost nothing you can do about it. See that other person, they'll start to collect all the properties, they're collecting their sets. What do they do? They start building their houses, their hotels. And very soon, your brother or sister owns 127 provinces across the Monopoly board. It all belongs to them. And you know for a fact that even though it's up to chance, no matter what number you roll with your dice, you are going to land on one of their hotels. And they will make you pay every last bit. It's horrible. There's no way you can go across that board to escape. Well, it's just a little picture of life in the Persian Empire. Expansive, inescapable. They were the ones in charge. You could not escape their reach. They were in charge. And this kingdom was incredibly attractive. Verse 4, for a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. This king really knew how to throw a party. Uh, this was the, sort of the ultimate kind of banquet. Now, there's two ways of understanding this. One is that there were two banquets here, one that lasts 180 days and a second one that lasts seven days. Uh, the other way to understand this is that there's actually uh, a big show that lasts 180 days where he is parading all of his wealth and might that finishes off with this banquet. You see, the historical context for this might well be that King Xerxes was preparing for a military campaign. He was setting up to take on the Greeks in a war. And so he's trying to gather in as much support as possible. And so if that's the case, what he's doing here is he's parading everything that belongs to him. Imagine this ultimate military parade, almost like a big sales pitch. King Xerxes is trying to demonstrate that he is king of the world. Look at everything that belongs to me. Look at everything that I hold within my hands. And it's as if he's saying to all these nobles and generals, if you go all in with me, you will be on the winning side. And then he caps it all off with a whole week of festivities. This is sort of the banquet to end all banquets. Just look at the uh, descriptions you get, the materials you get in verse 6. White and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen, purple material, silver rings, marble pillars, 
couches of gold and silver, a pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl. I don't even know what pearl, porphyry is, but it sounds very expensive. Uh, wine served in goblets of gold. The language here is lavish, extravagant, opulent. It oozes wealth and power. In fact, the only other place you get in the Bible a vivid description like this is with the building of the tabernacle, the building of the temple, which gives you a sense of how this really is no expense spared. Verse 7, not only are the goblets made of gold, each one is different from the other. Verse 8, by the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink without restriction. Put it this way, the writer could have just said that King Xerxes put on a banquet. And we just look at verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. Matter of fact, just a statement. And yet the emphasis is clear. We're meant to read this and go, wow, wow. This guy has everything. You think of those exclusive parties you read about in Hollywood, all the A-listers, all the food and wine that they have, all the people that you wish you knew were there. Or perhaps you think of royal banquets that you read from previous an era, maybe at Buckingham Palace. You think, wow, what? wouldn't it be amazing to be part of that? Even if you're not that into celebrities, even if you're not that into the royalty, I think all of us, know something of the allure of a world like this. Just the other week, we were at a mall in Hong Kong, opening a new store, it looked like, and there was a crowd outside, a whole queue lining up. And it looked like they were waiting for someone to arrive, the whole host of photographers standing there, literally climbing over each other with their big cameras ready to go. It was quite exciting. It felt like someone was about to arrive. Now, I don't actually know any Hong Kong celebrities, but we still stuck around because we wanted to see who was there. In fact, we even asked someone in the queue. We said, who's coming? They said, I don't know. But everyone was there because something exciting was going to happen. Oh, we want to be a part of it. It's attractive. It's impressive. This is the world that we find as we jump in to this book of Esther, the world we want to inhabit for the next seven weeks. And yet, of course, this world, even though on the one hand it feels so foreign, And yet at the same time, it feels so familiar because this is the world that we live in where other people look like they are in charge. There's other people who seem to run the show. We talk about the powers that be. Even though we might disagree on who we think is the most influential person, who's the most influential body or group, and yet we all know that in our daily lives, it feels like we are at the mercy of political powers, economic forces. We're at the whim of cultural winds. It feels like earthly powers are supreme. And in that context, it can seem like God is absent. Just think of when you listen to the news. You read the news headlines. They don't proclaim to us how God is at work in the world. You think of all our times scrolling through our news feeds. They don't proclaim how God is busy bringing about His purposes in the world. They can feel like God is absent. Well, that is the world that we are confronted with here. 
This is how one writer summarizes this. The Persians were strong. The Jews, God's people, were weak. The Persians were wealthy. The Jews were poor. The Persians seemed to own the world. The Jews seemed to be passed around from empire to empire. Xerxes could do whatever he wished. The Jews could not. In such a situation, the natural theological question to be asked is this. Xerxes is on his throne, but is God on his? Where is God in the world? Where is God in our lives? See, we are confronted with a world that looks very impressive. But that's not all we see here. No, because this is also a world that is not as impressive as it looks. No, there's more than meets the eye. King Xerxes sets himself up as the king of the world, the one who is in control. And yet, very quickly, we find that he is not all that in control. Verse 10. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was high in spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him. We get the list of names here. He commands them to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. See, by the end of this week-long festivities, King Xerxes is drunk. And from that state, he demands that Queen Vashti is brought out to him. Now, even this is all dressed up in pomp and circumstance. He sends a whole delegation just to bring out his queen. And it's clear what's going on here. You see, King Xerxes isn't bringing out his queen in order to show her honor. Now, he wants to show her off as an object. He's just spent six months demonstrating that he has everything at his disposal. He owns the world. And well, what better way to cap that all off than to show off his queen? See, it's not as if Xerxes is here wanting everyone to look at how wonderful Vashti is. Now, he wants everyone to look at her and think to themselves, wow, how awesome is King Xerxes. And yet, the illusion is broken. Verse 12, But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. There's this sudden block to his authority. So far from what we've seen, everyone would do his bidding. Well, not quite. He is not completely in control. Now, we don't find out exactly why Vashti refused to come. There's all sorts of speculation as to her motivations, but, but basically we don't find out. It doesn't seem to be the main point here. No, the focus is on Xerxes. He sets himself up to be the king of the world, the one who is in complete control but he really isn't. He really isn't. In fact, he's volatile. He really isn't as together as it might seem. And in the end, we find that he and his friends are totally out of touch with reality. Verse 13, Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. Again, we get a whole list of seven names here. These are the seven nobles of Persia and Media who had special access to the king. They were highest in the kingdom. These guys, they're built up as someone special, wise men, experts in the law, who knew and understood the times. But in the end, they look more like seven dwarves. 
like seven minions running around cluelessly. The satire continues in verse 15. According to law, what must be done to Queen Vashti? She's not obeyed the command of, the, of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. See, it started out as a private matter. The king wants the queen to come. Yeah, what does he do? He elevates it into a matter of state. What is he doing? Verse 16 onwards, we see King Xerxes and his merry men, this is sort of the ultimate overreaction. Verse 16, then Memucan replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles of the peoples of the provinces of King Xerxes. Just notice all the times all is repeated here. But the queen's conduct will become known to all the women. And so they will despise their husbands and say, well, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to come before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. You listen to that and you think to yourself, Memucan, have you gone crazy? Do you really think that this one little incident is going to bring down the entire Persian empire? This is sort of the ultimate overreaction. Do you really believe this is what's going to happen? And of course, in the end, their response is ultimately self-defeating. In fact, the way it's described, it's almost comical. Verse 19, Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree. Let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. See, they were offended because Vashti refused to come. And what did they do? Well, they write a law to say that she can't come, which is precisely what she didn't want in the first place. Uh, verse 20, it continues, that when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realms, all the women will respect their husbands from the great, least to the greatest. See, they were offended. They were troubled because the king could not control the queen with a command. And what do they do? Well, they tried to command all the women of the kingdom with another decree. Do you really think that's going to work? Verse 21, the king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. I bet they were. So the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household using his native tongue. I mean, they were so concerned that this news would spread across the whole kingdom. And what do they do? Well, they make sure that this news spreads to every corner of the kingdom as fast as possible. It's self-defeating. It's comical. I think we're meant to laugh. See, later in the book of Esther, there are some serious things that we'll come across. Dark things, actually. But this is the way the scene is set. This world, it looks impressive, but it's not as impressive as it looks. It's as if we have this invitation to see past the facade, to see through the show, to see past the illusion. This is a world that is not as impressive as it looks. Friends, our world that we live in, our society, wants us to spend all our time and energy dreaming about making it in this world. It wants us to spend every waking hour worrying about missing out in this world might be different for each of us. 
schooling and academics, uh, jobs and promotions, uh, property and security, whatever it is. It's as if the message is this. If you go all in with the ways of this world, then you will be on the winning side. But this world is not as impressive as it looks. King Xerxes sets himself up as the king of the world, but he isn't in control. He's not as impressive as it might seem. He's not as powerful as he might want to be. This world is not as impressive as it looks. And crucially, this is a world where God is at work. God really is at work in this world. You see, we get to the end of the chapter, you might be wondering, where is God in this chapter? We said at the start, God isn't mentioned at all in the book of Esther, certainly not here. We don't even get a mention of God's people, of their land. It feels almost random. Why are we starting this story with these events in Persia? What have they got to do with anything else? Well, what we find is that these very events lead to salvation for God's people. These very events. See, by the end of this episode, Queen Vashti is removed from her position. And next week, we'll find that the king wants to find a new queen. And who ends up being queen? Well, this little Jewish girl called Esther. In other words, by this time next week, we will see that one of God's people ends up queen of Persia. As the story unfolds, God's people will end up facing threat of complete destruction. And it is precisely through Queen Esther that God will save his people. And that starts here. That starts now. See, it's not as if in Esther chapter 1, God has sort of fallen asleep on the job. And then later in the book of Esther, he wakes up and then fixes things. No, he is at work even here. This is how Tim Keller put it. When you see one of the ten plagues, you know that's God. But when King Xerxes gets drunk and starts bragging, you don't say, wow, there's God at work. But the book of Esther is trying to tell you, don't make that mistake. God is at work. You see, one of the key lessons for us to take away from the book of Esther is going to be this. God's hiddenness does not mean abandonment. What seems like silence from God does not mean absence. Because God really is at work in the world despite appearances. He really is in control. It is a silent sovereignty. Think of it this way. A very well-known verse from the New Testament is Romans 8, chapter, uh, Romans 8 verse 28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. It describes for us what we call God's sovereignty, His absolute control, God's providence in particular, how God uses and ordains everything according to His good purpose. And of course, the all, all things here is all things. That means both good things and bad things, both the big things in life and the little things, the things that we'd expect, the things that are completely unexpected in life, the things that we think we can get our heads around, 
the things that we really cannot understand at all. He is using all of those things according to his purpose. Now, in our experience, we don't see how all of that works out. We don't see the ins and outs of that. But the book of Esther shows us, declares to us, that God really is working through those things. Earlier I mentioned, it is good news that God is not mentioned in the book of Esther. Because in our experience, God can seem hidden. God can seem silent. But the book of Esther assures us that He really is at work, even when you can't see it. And of course, that is, if you think about it, how God was at work through Jesus Christ. You think of when Jesus died on the cross. It looked like God was completely absent. And yet we know that it was precisely through His death on the cross that He brought salvation for the world. See, when you look at Jesus on the cross, you wouldn't have walked by and said, Wow, God is at work here. And yet we know and celebrate that that is precisely how Jesus Christ was victorious over sin and over death because he was raised from the dead. And in his resurrection, he was declared victorious as king. He is bringing about a truly glorious kingdom because he is the truly supreme king. And the book of Esther assures us that he is at work even now. Even when we feel so small in our world, even when earthly powers seem supreme, even when God seems to be absent, He is at work. And so as we close, what, what, where, where do we go from here? Now, what should we take away from this? Well, let me finish with just two things. The first is this. See, if God reigns supreme, if God really is at work in this world despite appearances, then friends, don't be so easily dazzled by the glamour of this world. Don't be dazzled by the glamour of this world. It'll be different for each of us. I wonder where do you feel this, the strongest temptation, the allure of this world. Friends, don't be dazzled by the glamour of this world. But more than that, don't miss the God who is at work in this world. Don't miss the fact that God really is at work in this world. Perhaps you're here this morning and you feel like God seems so distant, seems so far away. It feels like such a long time since you've seen Him at work in your life. Perhaps it feels like a long time since you've seen answered prayer and since you've seen him, felt, him, uh, felt Him close to you. Well, friends, the book of Esther here is to assure you God really is at work. He is at work not just in the big things, but even in the little things, even the mundane things, even today. Not that we can therefore explain everything that goes on, not that we can predict what's going to happen. Now, this is a call to worship to see that God is God. He sits on His throne to recognize that He reigns over all things and to see that He really is at work even now. 
as a let me close with the words from our final song that we'll sing a bit later. Behold our God seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the great gift of opening up your word. And we thank you that as we open up the Old Testament, you show us Christ. And we thank you and praise you that he is the king who reigns supreme. And that you are at work in our lives, even now, even when earthly powers seem supreme. And so we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would open our eyes afresh to see that you are not limited you are not limited to our categories or our expectations. No, you are at work, even when it doesn't look like it. We pray that that will lead us to worship your name. Amen.